Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has a history. Like angels, pistols and whalebone. Or pigeons, pasta and payment, pavements, priorities and protest. This is something that's immensely topical at the moment as we're in the midst of a very historical moment in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd and the power and intensity that we're seeing around the world connected to the Black Lives Matter movement. And we're going to be doing something on this next week when we look at the history of statues. But that is to get ahead of ourselves massively because, as always, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew? that the history of mirrors is all about Mary I and Tudor queens, political advice in the Renaissance, the emergence of the self, puddles, superstition and bad luck, or that the history of big heads is in fact all about Henry VIII. And that was one of our excellent recent homeschooling episodes. We do. We've really enjoyed doing those during lockdown. and Loads of you have been listening and got in touch about them all. We've got a couple of crackers coming up. We've got the history of temper tantrums we're going to be doing very soon oh, as well. Which no, is... we haven't! <laughs> <laughs> which, of course, is all about Henry II and uh, the murder of Thomas Beckett. That's going to be good. Anyway, uh, the man sitting opposite me... Well, he's not, actually, because we're in lockdown. So the man not sitting opposite me, let's just say if... Um, if history was the earth, he would be the stratosphere, I think. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Uh, and the man not sitting opposite me because he is across town in his shed. Well, let's just say there are two choices. It's either he is a historical care bear seated upon a cloud. He could be tender heart bear, rainbow bear, grumpy bear. He's not. But Grumpy Bear has a, a rain cloud on his chest. But that, clearly that's not you. And the one that I like much more is my second choice. And it's much more fitting, given your recent Chinese adventures. It is the Monkey King himself from the Japanese 1980s cult TV series flying atop his magical cloud. Yes, it's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Did you like that? That was quite, quite good. It. That's one of the best you've done. I want a magical cloud. I'm very pleased. And did you do you remember? Did you ever see that on television? 
Wait, Wait, but I, he... I'm already worried about where oh, my, God. my magical cloud. You should. He. It's up in the sky, and you call it by going like that, putting your fingers across your mouth and going. And then uh, it doesn't work well on a podcast, but you can imagine this. Um, and then the cloud, the cloud cup flies over, and you leap up and and jump onto it, and then fly off. Um, mm. Memories of my childhood. There you are. A bit of history just start us all off. Exactly. Um, but it's going to be a little. Yeah, a bit of pop culture. We like that. Um, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't worked out what on earth is going on, James and I are going to be talking about the history of clouds, which are um, deeply fascinating. Um, it's a topic we actually wrote about in our book, Histories of the Unexpected, how everything has a history. And I'm delighted that we're doing a podcast on it because it's allowed me to go into a little more depth about a couple of things. Excellent. Well, there um, are... So, James, let's think about this. How, how on earth should we do this? How do we do clouds? Well, for me, there are exactly two types of cloud. There are real clouds in the sky and there are man-made clouds. So that's my initial distinction. And if we were to start with the, with the real clouds in the sky, we could study them as phenomena. We could classify them. We could think about their use in terms of navigation, how people experience them. We could think about the metaphorical meaning associated with clouds. For example, the phrase to have one's head in the clouds, which is sort of, you know, be a slightly sort of airheaded. Then if we turn to man-made clouds, and this is where I shall feed into this podcast, then clouds take us to a place that's much more sinister. And for what I'm going to talk, be talking about, clouds are associated with war, not just metaphorically, in the sense of the storm clouds are gathering over Europe, that sort of phrase, um, but the clouds created by war. So I'm going to be talking about poisonous gases that were a very sinister part of trench warfare, but also atomic bombs and the clouds that came out of those. And also conceptually about how clouds allow you to think about the spread of disease and talk about cholera. I shall not divulge any more about that. Um, but that's how I that's how I, I see my clouds today. That's good. I mean, I think the point here is that um, everyone with histories of the unexpected, we give ourselves these challenges to think about. And what we do is we just try and bend our brains around the different ways we can think about it. Here, here we've got the, the you, you mentioned the science of clouds um, going back in the past and also clouds as a metaphor and uh, real clouds and clouds in war. So there's a various ways we can think about it. I thought about how you might use clouds. That was my starting point. Um, primarily, I think, because it's they're so easy to take for granted. And if you... Well, what's what's the way... I, mean, I, I did have a little browse around the internet before we went on, and one of the most popular themes you have is, um, is a brilliant meme, which is clouds that look like things. <laughs> if you've got five minutes spare, I'd have a look at it, because they're completely hilarious. Um, you can never tell how many of these images have been doctored and actually... Um, someone's basically just drawn a cloud in the sky. But if any of them are real, um, I would do please have a look at them. My favourite one was a bra, which was a very obvious, clear bra um, flying high above the sky of Dorset, which really made me laugh. But the principle behind it of how um, you might use a cloud is there. So here we're using clouds for entertainment, looking at them on the Internet, things that make you laugh. But back in history, clouds were used... Uh, in a number of ways. And I think that the fact that we don't really think about it nowadays says so much about how our lives have changed. Primarily, I want to talk about how clouds were used for navigation. Clouds are really interesting because they, they move with the wind. And that means that if you know what direction the prevailing wind 
is blowing in and your particular location, then the, the movement of the clouds themselves can offer a sense of direction. You can get a sense very quickly and very easily of which way you're facing. But if they're motionless, still not everything is lost because they can also offer a sense of the direction of the sun. Even if the sun is so low that it's only just below the horizon or even obscured by high ground. And they do this by reflecting the light of the sun. You get this golden glow on the underside of a cloud. Now, if you take that same principle of clouds reflecting things, you can also apply it to water and ice, which I think is fascinating because they reflect ice with a, a bright whiteness, but they reflect water with a dull grey. So even if you're a very long distance away, by studying the clouds, you can get a sense of what's up ahead of you. And these were key tools for the navigator in centuries of seafaring. And one of the most important, of course, is that the first glimpse of land after a long voyage was more often than not a cloud in what would otherwise be an empty horizon. So in that respect, the cloud's not just a tool of navigation, but then it becomes a reason for hope. It's a, it's a symbol of achievement. It becomes profoundly important in the lives of those navigators. One of the best ways of trying to understand just how important clouds were to people on ships is to look at journals at the time. And one of the most valuables is the journal of Captain Cook. This is uh, the, the chap who circumnavigated the world twice, 1768 to 71, again, 1772 to 75, and then was murdered in the Pacific during his third voyage. He died in 1779. And what I've done here is just taken a few examples of how they reference clouds in the journal. Here we are, November 1768, somewhere between the equator and Rio, the heading to Rio. Along the shore is low land covered with wood and sandy beaches. But inland are very high mountains, the greatest part of them being hid in the clouds. So we've got an important reference there, uh, particularly for later navigators as well. If they find themselves in the rough vicinity, they'll know that there are high mountains on shore. And therefore, if they see clouds up above the horizon, there's a good chance that they're looking at the land. Here's another fascinating one about when they uh, passed round Cape Horn at the same time. When the winds was westerly, the mountains on Tierra del Fuego were generally covered with dense clouds, formed, as one may reasonably suppose, by westerly exhalations and by vapours brought thither by the westerly winds. From that quarter come frequent showers of rain, hail and snow, and after we had left the land and were standing to the southward with the winds westerly, dark, dense clouds were continually forming in the horizon and rose to about 45 degrees, where they began to dissipate. These were generally attended with showers of rain or hail and squalls of wind, but as we advanced to the southward, these clouds became less dense, and in the latitude of 60 degrees 10 minutes, when we got the winds easterly, the weather was more serene and milder. Again, as we advanced to the northward, we had a constant clouded sky and dark gloomy weather, the whole time exceeding cold. So some fascinating and very detailed descriptions of the weather. And they're doing this to help other navigators when they find themselves in the same situation. However rare that might be to find yourself in a sailing ship off Tierra del Fuego in the 1760s. Nonetheless, but building up this type of knowledge is what laid the foundation for navigation and for scientific observations of the weather. But there are, of course, you know, one of the most 
um, important examples of people like Cook seeing clouds is when they use the smoke of clouds created by fire on the coasts to identify um, native inhabitants of the lands that they were approaching for the first time. It's something they particularly did with Australia. And that allows us to look at maybe the more prominent, more well-known extracts from Cook's journals. Um, I've got a one-for-one here. This is actually held in the British Library. And uh, this one doesn't mention clouds, but the point about it is that these interactions between Cook and, and uh, between Europeans and uh, the native inhabitants of the countries, they d- did have a much complex history behind it of the methods in which they actually managed to sail around the world. So anyway, let me just read this. It was a bit of an excuse, but it's wonderful. Some of the officers went on shore to amuse themselves among the natives, where they saw the head and bowels of a youth who had lately been killed, lying on the beach, and the heart was stuck on a forked stick, which was fixed to the head of one of the largest canoes. One of the gentlemen brought the head on board with them, where a piece of the flesh was broiled and eat by one of the natives, before all the officers and most of the crew. I was on shore at this time, but soon after returned on board and was informed of the above circumstances, and found the quarter deck crowded with the natives and the mangled head, or rather part of it, for the under jaw and lips were wanting. The skull had been broke on the left side just above the temples. The remains of the face had all the appearance of a youth under twenty. The sight of the head and the relating the above circumstances struck me with horror and filled my mind with indignation against these cannibals. Curiosity, however, got the better of my indignation, especially when I considered it would avail but little. And being desirous of becoming an eyewitness to a fact which many had their doubts about, I ordered a piece of the flesh to be broiled and brought on the quarter-deck, where one of these cannibals eat it with a surprising avidity. This had such effect on some of our people as to make them warm with those who came on board with me. Isn't that wonderful? What an amazing description. Nonetheless, bear in mind, please, everyone, that all of these descriptions of Captain Cook interacting with native uh, inhabitants of these countries, they almost all come after a description of him seeing clouds of some description on the horizon. So there you go, James. Ah, excellent. Excellent. And beautifully read, Sam. I very much enjoyed (laughs) that uh, sitting uh, in my own uh, little place here on the other side of town. Now, That introduction there of smoke clouds uh, links to what I'm going to talk about, which is man-made clouds. But I want to talk about another form of man-made clouds, which have a a rather macabre history all of their own. And the first thing that I want to talk about is the kinds of clouds that you got during the Great War of 1914 to 1918. And during the First World War, it was the gas cloud that set fear into the hearts of those infantrymen trapped in the stalemate war of attrition that was basically the experience of most of those foot soldiers in the trenches on the western front and to a lesser extent on the eastern front. These were bitter bloody battles literally over yards of territory and at a huge cost to life and casualties during World War One, are estimated at between 15 and 21 million deaths, 
with millions more injured. If you take a battle like the Battle of the Somme, it had something like one million casualties and more than 300,000 deaths. Now, in all of this, one of the most terrifying elements to trench warfare was the use of chemical weapons, primarily in the form of gas. Now, although the Hague Conventions of 1899 and 1907 had explicitly forbade the use of poisonous gas in warfare, so chemical weapons were not to be used, despite this, the German chemist, Dr Fritz Haber, over the winter of that first year of war, so 1914 to 1915, started doing experiments at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Chemistry in Berlin. And what he did was he developed technology that would engulf enemy troops in clouds of gas. Now, very clever, his technique was to use high-pressurised canisters of liquid which would be buried under the ground and when released into the air, this high-pressurised liquid would turn into gas. And this technique was first used at the Battle of Ypres on the Western Front in April 1915 when some 5,730, get that, 5,730 cylinders of this chlorine gas had been dug into the ground and were then released against the enemy, sending out a fairly faint grey-green cloud of very strong-smelling chlorine gas which floated across no-man's land, that piece of land in between the different sets of trenches between the, the Germans and between the Allied troops. So that sort of land, it floated across that. And on this occasion, the impact was basically to clear over seven kilometres, about five miles of Allied troops. But the problem was that the Germans weren't able to capitalise on this. There were few reinforcements and also they were quite afraid of the effect of the gas itself because one of the problems was when the wind changed rather like the what you were saying earlier on with the navigation when the wind changed the gas would go the other way so ultimately the Germans failed to capitalize on this impact of the gas however what this heralded was the start of a chemical war in the first world war with both sides employing clouds of poisonous gas alongside all the conventional techniques of shelling, of tanks, of air power, of infantry advances. But in the realm of gas clouds, techniques were developed to cope with such clouds as well, and one of which was to make makeshift gas masks fashioned out of urine-soaked handkerchiefs. This was a very sort of basic uh, gas mask before they got the sort of proper technology out there and it was fairly sort of effective against clouds of chlorine gas you know if you were in a pinch you, you'd be able to sort of use that however this aside one of the most tragic things to think about is the immense psychological impact of gas clouds so in a sense it's the psychological war of gas clouds that were the true weapon on the Western Front. And we can see this epitomised in 
a brilliant poem by the English poet and soldier Wilfred Owen. He's one of my favourite poets, and this is one of my favourite poems, which I studied, I think, at A-level or at GCSE. Uh, written in 1917, it describes a gas attack in verse, and it stands so starkly against the very patriotic peddling of recruitment posters, the sort of, you know play on people's loyalty and, and patriotism to go to war. And I'll just read this to you. I'll read it in full because I think it's so good. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Bent double like old beggars under sacks. Knock kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge. Till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep, many had lost their boots, that limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas! Gas! Quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time, but someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime, dim through the misty panes and thick green light as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams before my helpless sight he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud, of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie, dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. And that last phrase is, is haunting. It's a Latin phrase from the Roman poet Horace, and it translates as, it is sweet and fitting to die for one's country. So what we're having depicted there in, in sort of fabulous um, poetic verse is the use of chlorine gas on British troops and the greenish clouds of gas struck dread into the hearts of infantry troops and as I said before one of the problems and drawbacks of early forms of poisonous gas not only does it sort of move around with the wind but also it's eminently detectable in other words you could smell it you could smell the chlorine and also more importantly you could see it. So you could see the gas cloud. And then what we see is in the chemical weapons war that proceeds between 1915 and the end of the war in 1918, 
the real technological battle became about the development and manufacture of much more effective forms of gas, such as phosgene and mustard gas. And the use of phosgene gas was pioneered by French chemists and first used in 1915 against German lines. Now, the main advantage of phosgene was that unlike chlorine gas, it was completely colourless and therefore it was a much more effective and sinister silent killer of a chemical weapon because it was difficult to detect. So there we have it, Sam. The chemical warfare history of the First World War is thus all about the manufacture of invisible man-made clouds. Very good, James. A, a, a tour de force. We, um, we mentioned it a little bit when we did our podcast on beards, didn't we? Um, everyone was growing their beards in lockdown because no one had access to any barbers and everyone felt like they could, they could grow their facial hair for a change. And, um, the, I, love, I love this fascinating bit about not being allowed to grow a beard because uh, you couldn't get a seal properly on your gas mask. And also I, the, um, the sense of the world war changing so fundamentally from the, the type of war it was at the beginning to the invention of gas. So when you're thinking about the First World War, everyone, just try and think about it in terms of at least two completely different wars all strung together. Well done. Good stuff. Um, I want to go a little bit back. Well, first of all, actually, um, I wanted to... One of the reasons I did all this chatting about Cook is that there's some wonderful stuff online you all need to go and look at because um, Cook's journals are now online. It's a, an international collaboration. It's really interesting, actually. Um, we've got the Centre of Cross-Cultural Research at the Australian National University, the National Library of Australia, the Australian Science and Technology Heritage Centre... Uh, the State Library of New South Wales, HNET uh, Humanities, Social Sciences Online, James Cook University. They've all worked together to get Cook's journals and diaries online. And you can have a look at them at southseas.nla.gov.au forward slash index. That'll give you um, a, a an idea of, of the wonderful resources that they've got there. Sounds anyway, brilliant, I want... Sam. Sounds absolutely yep. brilliant. Yep, yep, yep. Really excited. It's not just Cook's stuff. They've got Cook's journal here, but they've also got Joseph Banks, who went with them, Sidney Parkinson and John Hawksworth, all of their different voyaging accounts. And if you've got an idle few minutes, you cannot beat reading that material. It's wonderful. But I will quickly go back to clouds and weather forecasting, just becoming slightly obsessed with it. <laughs> we're, we're, one of the reasons we're doing this is that I think it's just been the hottest May on record in the UK. We've had completely clear skies. There literally hasn't been a cloud in the sky. Now it's all it's all broken and it's normal June rain. It feels like the uh, wettest we're... June on record. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Um, uh, and I just wanted to, to say that you know I've just focused on using clouds to navigate by sea, but of course clouds were really important. Uh, for weather forecasting on land, particularly before the barometer. Um, when that became widespread, you've got scientific weather forecasting becoming widely accessible. So before that, you've got generations not just of sailors, but travellers, pilgrims, merchants, and people just working in the fields, shepherds and farmers, relying on clouds as indicators of weather conditions. Trying to get at this is really interesting. It's one of the things we come across a lot, James, isn't it? It's how you actually get at history that isn't necessarily written down. This is a classic example of it because a lot of this is all to do with sayings, rhymes, law about the weather. 
Uh, here's one. Clouds without rain in summer indicate wind. It's a pretty boring one, that, isn't it? Cloudy mornings turn to clear evenings, or when the clouds of the morn to the west fly away, you may conclude on a settled fair day. I much prefer that one. I like the ones that rhyme. But at some point, people went out there and uh, this is a generation of early historians travelling around the country, interviewing people and writing down what they could find. Um, we, we came across this in our podcast on isolation as well with um, a fascinating lady who travelled around trying to meet all of the hermits that were living all on their own in the UK and, uh, and writing about them. But here we are. In 1820, Charles Anthony Swainson wrote a handbook of weather folklore being a collection of proverbial sayings in various languages relating to the weather with explanatory and illustrative notes. Now, this is not the first one by any means, but it's one of the most important and the most interesting because it doesn't just have English proverbs. It's got a large number of weather sayings from the French, German, Italian uh, and also other other languages. And it's a little gem, this um, and here you are. <laughs> this, this is just the one about clouds I want to talk about. When black snails cross your path, James, black clouds much moisture have. So there we are, a bit of clouds relating to animals and insects. And in fact, here you see clouds in a much broader context. They're actually linked with all of these other things which were used to foretell the weather. So yes, you've got clouds, but you've also got Dew, mist and fog, rainbows, stars and meteors, the moon, frost, snow, rain, thunder and lightning, winds, animals, birds, fish, reptiles, insects, trees, plants, um, prognostics of the weather drawn from various objects, uh, such as those derived from chairs, tables, coals, candles, lamps, smoke, corn, rheumatism, uh, days of the week, months of the year, seasons of the year, and various other things. So clouds within a much broader, uh, fascinating context. I love the use of animals. Uh, I, I keep going back to what we've done recently, but it's also fascinating. We talked about this when we did the history of shadows, about how animals were studied to behave during eclipses in the 19th century. Uh, this is much older. This is, I think, 16th, 17th century, maybe. Um, and it's, uh, this is uh, much more focused on the weather. Snakes. Rain is foretold by the appearance and activity of snakes. Bees. When many bees enter the hive and none leave it, rain is clear. If flies cling much to the ceilings or disappear, rain may be expected. And uh, James, what do you want? Beetles or um, I can give you spiders? Oh, both. Beetles and spiders. Okay, beetles. The clock beetle, which flies about in the summer evenings in a circular direction with a loud buzzing noise, is said to foretell a fine day. <laughs> I don't know how you analyse the direction of the beetle's flight. And spi spiders creep out of their holes and narrow receptacles against wind or rain, Minerva having made them sensible of an approaching storm. So there we are. Clouds, absolutely fascinating, but within a much, much broader context of all sorts of things that were used to foretell the weather. And one of those, uh, this is great because 
it's really unusual. In British weather law, particular days were important. So what the day was like on St. Valentine's Day or St. Matthew's Day or St. Barnaby's Day, you've got to be good with your saints days or St. Swithin's days. Those were understood to have a uh, very profound impact on the weather for the rest of the year. And when this little booklet was formed, they only found one example in America um, of a specific day being related to other days in the year. And that was weather sayings related to Candlemas. If Candlemas Day is fair and bright, winter will take another flight. If Candlemas Day brings storm and rain, winter is gone and will not come again. That was a saying from Massachusetts. Um, fascinating stuff. I'm not sure when Candlemas Day is, James. Do you know? I could look it up. I don't have the. I don't have it in my in my oh, head. Let, let us know. Get in touch. Sir, my head is my head is full of all sorts of other things at the moment. <laughs> Busily homeschooling and and working away like a maverick as ever. Um, however, my second example crisscrosses us back to this idea of man-made clouds. And again, the theme is about war. And this time it relates to atomic bombs and the clouds that they created at the end of the Second World War. So there's a theme going through this. So we can see then a, a new chapter in the history of man-made clouds emerging in the at the end of the Second World War. Now, ever since the dropping of atomic bombs on the Japanese cities of Nagasaki and Hiroshima in August 1945, the man-made clouds that erupted out of these enormous explosions have dominated our view of total war and the power of modern-day nuclear weapons and technology to literally obliterate, annihilate life on Earth. And you can't help but be aghast, horrified, shocked when you see the pictures of the detonated atomic bombs, the awesome firepower, the dreadful destruction they caused as Japan was literally bombed into submission at the end of World War II. They're some of the most vivid and horrifying images of the 20th century. And they're certainly something that, you know, I saw as a young boy and have had a very sort of vivid lasting impression on me. But what I'm interested in here, though, is not with the technology and the development of the bomb, its violence, its power. What I'm interested in, really, is with the language used to describe them, the kind of linguistic feature of describing the cloud of smoke that erupted out of the bomb. And in particular, it's the use of the term mushroom, the term that's used to describe the shape of the cloud caused by the power of the blast as material is gathered up from the ground with water vapour. There's a spherical fireball and a blast wave and all of it is forced upwards and outwards. Now, the term mushroom stuck by the 1950s, but it wasn't always the term used to describe these kind of events. And before that, it was much more muddied and much more varied. And take, for example, the first observers of nuclear explosions. They used very different words to describe them. Those, for example, who watched the Trinity Test of July 1945 in New Mexico, in the desert there, um, reported what they described as a 
multicolored surging cloud. It doesn't quite have the same sort of zing to it. Or a giant column, or a chimney-shaped column, a great funnel, and even a raspberry. I don't know. I can't imagine any of those having <laughs> having There's stuck. A raspberry cloud of of Hiroshima. One Japanese witness described what was a, and I quote, pillar of black smoke shaped like a parachute. And an eyewitness on the, of the test on Bikini Atoll in 1946 spoke of witnessing a cauliflower cloud. Now, none of these to our modern sensibilities, now that the term mushroom has stuck, seem to really have the same kind of ring to them. However, it's at the Bikini Tests the Bikini Atoll tests, that a reporter remarked, the mushroom, now the common symbol of the atomic age. And this descriptive term then stuck. And so dominant was this distinctive image of a mushroom cloud in conveying the horrors of nuclear war during the 20th century that the Russian newspaper Pravda reported that the mushroom-shaped cloud was suspended over the future of mankind. This haunting spectre of the man-made mushroom cloud was a dominant feature during the Cold War period. And in fact, it's still one that lingers over the, us today. And it reminds me uh, of my, my childhood. Uh, I was born in, born in the 70s, early 70s. Uh, but my sort of my heyday was probably the 80s, and it makes me think of the front cover of that Raymond Briggs book, When the Wind Blows, which is a graphic novel published in 1982. And basically, this is a story about a nuclear attack on uh, the British Isles by the Soviet Union, the USSR, um, and it, f it fixes on a, a retired couple, Jim and Hilda Bloggs, and it's their experience. And on the front cover, is the two of them with their arm round each other and in the background is this sort of explosion with a mushroom cloud. The book was later made into an animated film. Um, so there we are, there we have it. Uh, the, the, the history of clouds is all about the atomic bomb and the end of World War II. Wonderful. Well, I hope you've all enjoyed this, guys. And if just bear this in mind, because if you've never used clouds, whether it's to look into history or to think about or whatever it might be, we've hopefully encouraged you to do so. But I'd use them now for what they can tell you about climate change, because we now know that clouds are a signpost of climate change. They're, they're like a warning written in the sky for everyone to see, if only you know where to look. You see, clouds have their own history in the sense that they're changing and then they have changed over time. So clouds today are not the same as clouds a century ago or even 50 years ago. They're changing their appearance and habit as the earth warms up beneath our feet. It's a really frightening sentence to say that. The latest research suggests that the main area of storm tracks in the middle latitudes of both hemispheres has shifted towards their respective poles, expanding the areas of dryness in the subtropics and the height of the very highest cloud tops themselves has also increased. So in this sense, the clouds that we see in our sky are not the natural phenomena that we might suppose that they are, rather they have are and have been shaped by man. And we're living now in a key moment in the history of our clouds. There you are, something to think about at the end. I, I, have, have, one, I have one extra uh, Ooh, to, add, to add. Since we're, since we're living in a sort of COVID-19 world and we're thinking about contagion and we're thinking about how disease was transmitted, I want very briefly to tell you about my final example, which is, again, 
downcast and sinister. Um, and it's about clouds in relation to disease. And in the 19th century, clouds of mist or miasma were believed to carry disease. Uh, and in particular, were central to conceptualizations of the way in which cholera spread. So cholera, cholera is a, an infection of the small intestine, leads to diarrhea. It, we know nowadays that it's spread by a sort of oral fecal route, it's poor sanitation, it's water supply, contamination of water. The Victorians sort of did all sorts of stuff to try and, you know, sort that all out. But if you have a look at the early 19th century, it was used, the concept of a cloud was used to describe this, this kind of contagion. And there's a wonderful little example uh, that comes from a Scottish, northern Scottish fishing village uh, from October 1831. It's a village called Nig, uh, where the villagers reported seeing a little yellow cloud that was said to hug the ground. And terror went round the village as the inhabitants were convinced that it represented the deadly disease cholera. And there's a lovely sort of touching tale of one particular brave soul who, armed with a linen sack, sought to rush towards the cloud and catch it as if in a net. And what he did was he then secured the neck of the sack with a large number of pins, and then noticing that the linen sack used to capture this cloud was in fact changing colour from white to yellow, what he did was he decided that he wouldn't hold these supposedly deadly contents for any longer. But he then buried it in the ground and marked it with a stone, which still stands to this day, named as the cholera stone. Mm. So, so what we have here is the way in which the idea of a cloud was used to conceptualise contagion, to figure deadly spores as an object, as a cloud that was basically tangible and something that could be easily and widely comprehended. And I think it's fascinating to think about that as scientists grapple with understanding how COVID-19 is transmitted. And I think they're only just making a breakthrough at the moment. And what are we now? We're on the 12th of June, 2020. Do you know, I think where they're going wrong is that no one's trying to catch it in a sack. <laughs> I think that's it. Do you know what? If someone in Wuhan had just got a proper sack, right, and, and he'd, he'd had a good run and a good hunt, then we may none of us be in this situation now. So that's what I think we've learned from that wonderful historical example. Um, guys, I do hope you've enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, if you'd like to support us, you can at patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected. It would all be hugely, hugely important, particularly would help out with our homeschooling series, which we're very much enjoying doing. and We don't want to stop. Um, do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com as well for everything we've got involved, all of our books and all of our, our podcasts going back through the many years we've been doing this now. Um, you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow the pod on at Unexpected Pod. And do please get in touch. If you've got any quirky stories, any ideas for future episodes, we'd love to hear from every single one of you out there. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye-bye. Stay safe, guys. See you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 